0: church into this building this morning. If you haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastor elders of our church. Guy gets to do most of the preaching around here. Uh, this is the crowd that made it, that has not been pummeled yet by the sickness wave that has flown through the South Metro Atlanta area. Glad that you're here. Um, as James just mentioned, alluded to, uh, this is a family style Sunday. We do that every fifth Sunday. So next week, Lord willing, the kids ministry will be um, up and running If you're new, kind of wondering how we go about things, why your kiddos are in your lap right now uh, when our website says we have a kids ministry, uh, every fifth Sunday we do this. And there are a number of reasons, a number of values. I won't get into that this morning, but um, hopefully um, you're encouraged by your time here, whether it's your first time or your hundredth time, wherever you fall uh, on the spectrum there. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to open up your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 5 through 17 this morning, a little way past the halfway point of this incredible book of the Bible, as I've mentioned numerous times over, written to a body of believers, likely established during Paul's third missionary journey by a man named Epaphras, a man who had traveled to Ephesus during Paul's time there, uh, had received Jesus under the preaching of the gospel, uh, Paul's uh, apostolic ministry, and then took the gospel back to his hometown of Colossae, Epaphras did, only then to return to the apostle Paul during Paul's Roman imprisonment with word that the Colossian church was being threatened by a dangerous teaching or teachings. Paul's letter to the Colossians meant to encourage them to stay the course in bringing before them the glory of the risen, exalted, preeminent Jesus. In the words of one scholar, Paul understood that when Jesus consumes our focus, everything else is put into its proper perspective. I'll go ahead and let you in on a little secret as you're opening your Bible to this morning's passage, which, by the way, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to use that Bible. Feel free to take it home with you if you don't own a Bible, as the churches gift to you. Passage will be up on the screen behind me, as well as we work our way through it. Now, back to the secret. Um, I spent way too much time on this morning's sermon, and to let you in on what was running through my mind that I finally had to come to grips with, I realized that uh, though I could jokingly say it um, a thousand times over, and you would understand what I mean by this, there's something uh, that, that I struggled to functionally embrace with respect to this, this notion that we're just not gonna get on the other side of a passage that talks about the, the work of sanctification in the life of a believer and graduate. We're not going to put on our caps when we leave this morning, you know, our graduation caps, and walk out of this place and go, okay, sanctification, good to go. I'll never struggle again. Um, there are two, two ways that I think you'll likely leave, maybe a little frustrated this morning. This may be the, the one sermon in this series that frustrates you more than all the others uh, for two reasons. One being, that we're not gonna do a deep dive into uh, these lists of vices and virtues that are found in this morning's passage. You'll see soon enough what I mean by that. Um, We have done that before. You can go back to the sermon archives on our website and find sermon series like Seven Deadly Follies, where we walk through things like greed and lust and pride, or back to uh, the series we did in the book of Proverbs a few years back, where very similarly, we walked through some of these topical things that have to do with the world of vice and virtue. Same thing with a series entitled Virtues, where we actually walk through Galatians 5, uh, the works of the flesh, the fruit of the spirit, as Paul unpacks it there. And so I would commend those sermons to you if you want to do a deeper dive, but we're not going to get down into the the grit and detail of these lists this morning. We're going to stay a little bit higher altitude. That may frustrate you, particularly if you see... uh, the top of the list vice that you struggle with in this morning's passage and maybe long for that to be unpacked a little bit more or see some of the the beauty of the virtues of the kingdom uh, that you long for most and wish for that to be unpacked a little bit more. Secondly, and and I alluded to this just a moment ago, uh, this is not something that we graduate from. In fact, the doctrine is called progressive sanctification so that we're gonna wake up tomorrow and stumble our way forward with two left feet, even though we've worked through what the Apostle Paul has to say about these things. And so for me, it was a great struggle to just stop and breathe and trust the Lord with the same steady diet of the preaching of his word that happens in this space every Sunday uh, and and to trust that this meal will be uh, for his glory and for our good, that there will be some meat left on the bone, so to speak, and that that's okay, Um, So with that, let me pray for me and for all of us, and we'll jump into uh, this incredible passage of scripture together. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for sending your son into the world to live the virtuous life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserve to die in our place. Our sins, our vices nailed to the cross, Colossians 2 paid for in full. I pray that we would rest in that. As James mentioned just a few minutes ago, the new identity that's ours in union with Christ, new creations, positionally the old self put off, the new self put on. Lord, I pray that we would get a a better understanding as we sit with your word in front of us as to what it means to live in the fullness of that functionally in the day in and day out Holy Spirit, would you awaken our minds and hearts in some way such that we would leave this place encouraged, comforted, exhorted. Lord, may this not be an exercise in futility and I trust that it will not be. I pray that you'd give me a feeling sense of the very things that I preach. Spirit of God, move in power during our time together. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. So just to catch us up to speed, if this is your first Sunday or your first Sunday in, in, a, in a bit, to sort of get you on track with where we are in the book of Colossians, uh, I mentioned last week that most scholars agree that, that this book of the Bible is structured so that, and you'll see it up on the screen behind me, that the first couple of chapters get into things that are doctrinal with respect to the Christian life, the last two chapters things that are practical. Chapters one and two, our position in Christ. Chapters three and four, our practice in Christ. Chapters one and two, Christian belief. Chapters three and four, Christian behavior. Chapters one and two, the work of Christ, sound doctrine. Chapters three and four, the walk of the Christian, spiritual directives. Chapters one and two, the Christian's identity. Chapters three and four, the Christian's responsibility. Chapters one and two, orthodoxy, what we believe. Chapters three and four, orthopraxy, how we live this thing out. Just a number of different ways of saying the same thing, right? And there is some nuance, some overlap. You see uh, some of what's on the right side of that uh, graphic up on the screen bleed over into the left and vice versa. But for the most part, this is how things break down with this book of the Bible, And so last week we sat with the first four uh, verses of chapter three. Those four verses functioning something like a hinge on a gate I mentioned last week that, that opens in both directions. Looking back to the first two chapters of this book, the fullness of who Jesus is, who we are in union with him. Also looking forward to the last two chapters, what it is to live in light of our union with Christ. So that as we continue to work our way through this incredible letter, Paul's gonna unpack what it means to live in practice who we already are in position in Christ. He's gonna unpack what it means to become what we've already been declared to be in Jesus. The the best illustration or word picture that I can offer up to try to kind of make sense of what, what Paul's after in this morning's passage and as we continue on through this incredible letter is the illustration of marriage. So that when... A man and a woman come together, husband and wife, on their wedding day. There's a declaration that you are now one. You're one flesh. It's proclaimed over you. And then you wake up the next day and you understand each other completely, right? There's nothing to work out because it's been declared of you. There's nothing to practice or sort through. You know exactly how the chores are to be chopped up. You know what it is to introvert and extrovert together perfectly. No, we, we feel that way for the honeymoon, right? And then we come back and we realize there's a lot to learn. And you spend the rest of your life learning what it is to be in practice, one flesh, what you've already been declared to be. And you, you do it in a together way and you think you've got it figured out before kids and then kids come and you realize you don't have a clue and you do it all over again. And then kids leave and you do it as empty nesters and you realize how much you've made your children the center of your lives and you gotta work through all that stuff. And hopefully by the time you're old and gray and you see this from time to time, one of you passes away and the other doesn't lag too far behind because you've been so knit together. You even look like each other at this point, people say, right? That's something of what the Apostle Paul has in mind, of what the Christian life is like. That you've been declared righteous in Christ. You've been robed in the righteousness of Jesus positionally. And now you and I both, we get to become righteous for the rest of our lives functionally we get to work this thing out in a relationship with Jesus having been declared righteous we now work out functionally what that looks like and so i just invite you to keep that in mind as we as we move forward if if you forget what you've been declared to be then you'll wake up and you'll you'll claw after a righteous life in order to try to gain position or acceptance with, with God. We get it confused, we get it mixed up. But if we will remember that we've been declared righteous already in Christ and wake up and begin to exercise those muscles of what it means to be in union with Jesus, I think I think we'll clear up a lot of the muddiness of, of what has infiltrated the church over these last however many years it's been that, that we've sort of um, done damage to people's understanding of the gospel. And so with that in mind, and just so you guys all know, in this auditorium, in moments like these, the, the, the noises of young children are a good thing. Don't be bothered by that. This is the family of God coming get together to worship him. So uh, with that said, verse 5 of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All right, this gets after what I was just saying. You, we mustn't miss the therefore of verse five as it reminds us of the foundation on which we stand in the fight for God-glorifying obedience. The false teachers in Colossae, they were, they were peddling their own uh, path of necessity to true spiritual maturity, a path opening the door to supposed new experiences of God. We can offer you more of a fullness of experience than, than anything you've known before to which Paul responds with his own understanding of what it means to live under the rule and reign of Christ, it begins with being delivered from the domain of darkness. Chapter one, verse 13, transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. Going back to last week, having died and and been raised with Christ, our lives hidden with Christ in God, someday to appear with Christ in glory. Paul's not arguing for a moralism, on the one hand, that calls people to be good apart from the redemptive work of Jesus, We must be made new in him if we are to be made new at all. Our only hope of forgiveness and redemption, the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. But neither is Paul arguing for a a licentiousness that abandons the notion of spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience as, as though a threat to grace. Paul wants believers to live for the glory of the one having rescued us from one kingdom to another. This morning's passage, an exhortation again to become who we've already been declared to be, to live out in practice who we already are in position in Christ. Having been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Husbands and wives, you've been declared one flesh. Now spend your lives becoming what you've been declared to be. Likewise, Christian, you have been crucified with Christ. Now spend your life crucifying or putting to death what is earthly in you. As John Owen says in his famous work, The Mortification of Sin, be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Make no mistake about it, the war has already been won, the victory, the outcome determined in Jesus. But at the same time, the Christian life is no peacetime endeavor. Jesus died not only to secure our forgiveness, but also our spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience. As Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, Romans 8, 13, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul's aim is that believers not be taken captive by the whispers of the world with its fleeting pleasures, its empty promises, its self-made religion even. Rather that we would interpret our very lives and the world around us through the lens of all that's true of Christ and who we are in union with him. All the past, present, and future riches of the gospel informing and shaping our thoughts, our affections, Our decisions compelling us to put what is earthly in us to death, not to put it in a cage, not to put it on a leash, but to kill it, Paul says, whatever it is that would otherwise kill us. In this case, Paul presenting us with what is by no means a comprehensive list of of vices. In fact, the first of three vice and virtue lists in this morning's passage alone Not to mention the many other similar lists found elsewhere throughout Paul's writings. In fact, in in Hellenistic Jewish literature, what Paul includes here in verse five, this list, it would have been considered something of a junk drawer. All the sins of the pagan world were summarized by references to sexual immorality and idolatry to a, a hearkening back to the Ten Commandments here as we see a great bit of overlap in the language that Paul uses here with uh, what you see um, in the writings of the Old Testament. Paul here focusing on those things which represent the deepest and most seemingly irresistible. Coming after not only the outward actions, notice, but uh, Paul surely does that. The word translated sexual immorality covering all uh, activity categorically there outside of marriage, but more than activity, the inner cravings, the, the emotions, the motivations, just as Jesus exposes in the Sermon on the Mount, getting underneath. As a Tennessee farmer once said, what, what comes up in the bucket is usually what's down in the well. Captured here by Paul's language of impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, meaning that sin is a corruption not just of the will, our actions, our behaviors, our decisions, but the mind and the heart, all of it idolatry. Paul says, a pushing of the true God to the margins for God substitutes and God additives. In this case, God substitutes and God additives of a sexual nature, though again, our heart's capacity to, to misplace our adoration, it goes well beyond a single category, right? Tim Keller writes, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it is an idol. Or as Martin Luther more soberly once wrote, whatever thy heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly or functionally thy God. As Jesus himself said, Luke 16, no servant can... I uh, serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Right? There's a, a throne in the castle of our hearts and there's only room for one on that throne. Paul is, is bringing us back to the, the lordship of Christ, the question of who or what is functionally seated on the throne of our hearts this day. Elsewhere in scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says to flee from idolatry, to to run for the hills. It's the the same kind of strong language that he uses here in this morning's passage in calling believers to put sin to death. Paul understands that to live under the rule and reign of Christ, it means dying to sin, the new creations that we are, and walking in the newness of life that's ours in Jesus. He goes on. In verse six, he says, on account of these, going back to verse five, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And here he gives a second list of vices, anger, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Like the warning passages found in the book of Hebrews, a means of grace, to believers, meant to disentangle our affections from the perishing things of this world. A world, Paul says, to which we once belonged, verse seven. That's who you were. That's who you used to be. A child of wrath, Ephesians two, once alienated and hostile in mind, going back to chapter one of Colossians, verse 21. Paul says, it's not who you are in Christ, on whom the wrath of God was poured out in your place, you're a new creation. There is now no condemnation for you, Romans 8, 1. You died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, Colossians two twenty, You belong not only to a new kingdom, but a new king, a good king, a king of glory and of grace. A king, notice, whose kingdom is not solely about individualistic change, as Paul exhorts us to put away anger, wrath, Malice, slander, obscene talk, corruptions again of the mind, heart, and will, which express themselves in the context here of relationships. The tongue, a rudder that steers the whole ship, James chapter 3, verse 5. A restless evil full of deadly poison. Words, far more dangerous than sticks and stones, their capacity to undo love and unity in the Christian community. They don't just break bones, they kill. Think about this. Such will not be the case in the eternal kingdom of Christ that awaits. There will be no anger. There will be no wrath. There will be no malice. There will be no slander. There will be no obscene talk. And so Paul says, let's put away the poison now. Let's practice for eternity now. Let's live and practice who we are in position in Christ, not just as individuals, but communally. He says in verse nine, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here again, the, the imperatives, the commands to live as such Paul grounds those imperatives in the indicatives of the gospel, what's already true of us in Christ. Do not lie to one another. Present tense imperative, right? Command. On what grounds? Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Past tense indicative. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, Here Paul shifts from the the language of mortification, of crucifying, of putting sin to death, that kind of imagery, to the the language and imagery of a wardrobe change, of putting off and putting on. It's another word picture meant to, to help us understand what it means to, again, live in practice what we've already been declared to be positionally in Christ. So that you could say it this way. Husbands and wives, you have been declared one flesh. Now spend your lives becoming what you've been declared to be. Likewise, Christian, you have been crucified with Christ. Now spend your life crucifying, putting to death what is earthly in you. And now to add another word picture, likewise, Christian, you have been stripped of the garments of shame and defilement associated with the old self and have been robed in the purity and righteousness of Jesus Christ positionally. Now spend your life practically becoming who you already are in Jesus, putting off the garments of sin and putting on the garments of righteousness. Uh, By way of illustration, I never feel my dirtiest as I do when I try to squeeze in a two for one and I'll go out and, and do a few laps around the neighborhood, get in a jog or a brisk walk, whatever it may be, particularly on a a hot Georgia humid summer day, and then come back and decide to do a little yard work before hopping in the shower. So then on top of the sweat gets added dust and dirt and grime and all the stuff associated with what it is to uh, rake up leaves or mow the lawn. You know that feeling, you come in, you, you have to peel your clothes off of you. Nothing feels better than that shower cleaning you up, particularly the, the, the showers that require you know three or four rounds of the thing you normally only have to do once to get your body clean, to get all the dirt out of your hair. I would venture to guess that none of us in those moments have ever hopped out of a shower and been compelled to go right back to the dirty workout yard clothes that we just took off of our bodies and, and to put those on uh, the clean self. Paul's trying to give us something of, of this imagery that, that would say, that's what it is to functionally turn to sin, to turn to vices as he describes them in this morning's passage. And again, not comprehensively. Paul's saying, you're a new creation. You're robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's inviting us to live in light of who we are, not who we were when the sin-soaked garments of the old self defined us. Again, Paul's saying, you you belong to a new kingdom and not just a new kingdom, but a new king. And and notice the encouragement that Paul has for us in declaring that that we're not alone in this work, this sanctifying work of God. Paul says, our, our new self is what? It's being renewed. That's the passive form of the verb, meaning that God himself is an active agent in all of this, in the lifelong process of our sanctification. As Paul says elsewhere, Philippians 2, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, kill sin, put it to death, shed any sin-soaked garments. For Philippians two thirteen, the very next verse, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Human responsibility and divine agency. We work out because God works in. It's part of this new humanity, together being conformed to the the image of Christ. Paul goes on in verse 11, he says, here in this new humanity, there is not Greek and Jew Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, describing ethnic and religious distinction, a a dividing wall of hostility having been brought down in Christ, Ephesians 2.14. Same thing with cultural and class distinction. Barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, made alive together in Christ, joined to his body now being knit together in love to use that colossians language as paul says in other places galatians 3:28 for you are all one in christ jesus baptized into one body 1 corinthians 12:13 made to drink one spirit all a part of the one and same new humanity god's redemptive work of new creation in jesus where christ is all paul says verse 11 he's our hope He's our everything. It's another way of saying what David says in Psalm 16. I have no good apart from you. You're it for me, Jesus. Christ is all. And Christ is in all, verse 11. Meaning that he's in all who know him. Regardless of cultural or social distinction. The hope of glory, Christ in you. Colossians 1, The hope of glory, Christ in me. The hope of glory, Christ in us. God's intimate presence in the lives of his people, Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, 17. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, no place for notions of superiority among those who are in him, in contrast to what the false teachers in Colossae were were peddling. Paul then goes on, and I love that he does this. I'll explain why in a second. He goes on to say, verse 12, put on then. Again, this is where you get some of that bleed over. Chapters one and two, as Paul reminds us of our position in Christ here in chapter three. God's chosen ones, recipients of his sovereign grace and unmerited favor. Holy and beloved, Paul says, set apart, deeply loved. Paul now turning our attention to the new self, that which we are to put on as God's beloved in Christ as we clothe ourselves in the reality of what it is to be a part of this new humanity. Here's what I mean when I say I love this part of this passage. Paul understands that it's not just about avoiding the ugliness of the vices, but seeing the beauty of the virtues of the new kingdom that we've been caught up in. It's why... Um, Proverbs chapter nine is so compelling with its imagery of the home of not just Lady Folly who invites us in to grab a glass and raise it and toast to our own death, but also Lady Wisdom who invites us in for the most glorious of spreads. If I could say it a different way, and I understand that not everyone will understand the, the illustration here, but I commend the book to you as I have probably, I don't know, a hundred times at this point. In Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, it's not just about seeing the white witch as ugly. It's not just about seeing the ugliness of her castle surrounded by beautiful creatures having been made statues. It's not just about seeing the the ugliness of Turkish delight being the best she has to offer. It's also about seeing the lion, the Christ figure. It's about seeing winter melt into spring and the beauty of springtime. It's about seeing Aslan's country and what awaits, what's to come and being compelled by the other side of it all. There are two sides to a coin. Paul understands that If sin is a well, the aim is not to stand by it and stare down into it and call that the Christian life. Though it's helpful to see how deep that well goes and what's at the bottom of it, but there's something on the other side of our shoulder, right? There's a beauty and a joy and a freedom and a hope. Here, Paul invites us to see the beauty of Christ and to live in accordance with the virtues of his good kingdom, embracing compassion and kindness, humility and meekness, patience, forbearance and forgiveness as the Lord has been compassionate and kind to us, patient and forbearing with us in Christ, having tasted the forgiveness that's ours in Christ. One of the great signs that God's grace has truly and deeply worked its way into our hearts, our ability to both receive it and extend it. Above all things, Paul says, love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. See 1 Corinthians 13. In some sense, there are some things that we can't practice now that will be true in eternity. I have a bum ankle that got shattered into a thousand pieces right before my 19th birthday when I fell asleep at the wheel. Until Jesus returns and I receive my glorified body, I will not know what it is to do those jogs around the neighborhood without feeling pain on the other side of it. I can't practice pain-free glorified body kind of stuff right now. My bones creak a little more than they used to. I can't escape that. I can't do anything about that. I can practice love now, which will be true in the kingdom. I can practice patience now, which will be true in the kingdom. I can practice humility now, which will be true in the kingdom. You ever think about how much of an enemy of our own joy we are when we wake up each day simply by not practicing what Paul's inviting us to? Already in Christ positionally again, not trying to earn anything, not running on a treadmill, but because we're his, because that's where we're headed, to Aslan's country. That's where all this is going. That's the future. We, we long for it, we sing about it when we sing these songs about the age to come, the hope that awaits us, and we go, yes, amen, come Lord Jesus. And then we push to the margins, the very essence of the kingdom when we wake up each day. Paul says, you don't have to live like that. Verse 15, he goes on, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful, worry and discontentment the outworking of clinging to our earthly idols and ambitions, the home of Lady Folly, the white witch's kingdom, peace and gratitude, the marks of a life lived under the rule and reign of Jesus, Aslan's country, the home of Lady Wisdom. Paul this morning inviting us to stop living as the greatest enemies of our own joy, to know the peace and peace Thankfulness that comes in living accordance, in accordance with Christ and his kingdom. How do we do this? What does this look like in, in part? Paul goes on, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, The word of truth, chapter one, verse five, the gospel. There's a reason Paul spent two chapters unpacking what he's unpacked the glorious past, present, and future riches of who Jesus is and his person and work of redemption, and two, with that, the riches of who we are in union with him, also past, present, and future, never to be abandoned, no matter what the competing voices may whisper, be it the voice of the enemy. Voice of the world, voice of our own flesh. Again, bidding us to raise a glass and toast our own demise. No, we're to teach and admonish one another, Paul says, keeping the beauty and majesty of Christ in front of each other. One beggar could say, showing other beggars where to find bread. That's what the church is. Him we proclaim, chapter 1, verse 28. In part with our song, Paul says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, whatever the, the many diverse forms of the church may be in their expression, Christ forever and always, the substance of the song. With grateful hearts, him we proclaim. With grateful hearts, him we sing. And to the demise and loathsome ability of the legalists. Paul goes on to close out this morning's passage, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, teaching and admonishing one another in Christ, yes and amen singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in Christ. Glory, hallelujah. But lest we compartmentalize the practice of becoming who we've already been declared to be to teaching, admonishing in the song of the church, Paul says, whatever you do in word, deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever. It's the least favorite word of a legalist, isn't it? It breaks the banks of the river. Christian life. It's a life lived under the rule and reign of heaven's king, the entirety of our lives, our wholehearted devotion. That's what God's after. Something that we wake up to each day, learning more and more how to live in practice as the new creations that we are in Christ, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Again, as a husband and wife, have been declared one flesh on their wedding day and then work that out for the rest of their lives in a together way, so too, if you're a Christian, you've been declared righteous on the basis of the meritorious work of Jesus Christ on your behalf and now you, with God, in a partnership, get to work that out practically for the rest of your life. christian you've been crucified with christ so spend your life crucifying putting to death what is earthly in you you've been stripped of the garments of shame and defilement associated with the old self and have been robed in the purity and righteousness of jesus christ so spend your life practically putting sin off and putting on righteousness live in light of who you are not who you were when the sin-soaked garments of the old self defined you Again, you belong to a new kingdom and you belong to a new king, a good king. This is not something begrudging in closing this morning that the apostle Paul is inviting us into. Again, he's inviting us to enter the home of lady wisdom, to know greater freedom, to know greater peace, to know greater joy, to not function so much as an enemy of our own joy to trust God that this is the path to true freedom and joy, to believe God functionally, not just confessionally or theologically. And so I would ask us before praying and inviting us to the elements of our service that's to come, I would, I would ask, where is where's the Holy Spirit on the move in your life this morning? Where is he revealing on the one hand, what's at the bottom of the well that's drawing you in, that's luring you like Lady Folly saying, come into my house, inviting you to to raise that glass and to toast your own death. Perhaps it doesn't make its way onto one of these short lists in this morning's passage. On the flip side, where's the spirit of God opening your eyes to see the the beauty of a new king and a new kingdom and an opportunity for the taking to lean into, to not just look down the well, but to look over your shoulder and to see beauty and hope and joy and freedom calling you to run toward it. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.